Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast and our series, Myth is America, a linear look at uh, the fabrications, wrongful omissions, and uh, manufacturing of ethically constitutive story in United States history. I am Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to pick up in uh, an era we basically call the... Well, the build-up to the War for Independence, one of the four more famous, of course, moments in, in U.S. history that we're going to deconstruct a little bit in this podcast. It'll probably take a couple of episodes, but uh, today we're going to try and basically get through uh, all of the, the build-up period, right, from uh, the French and Indian War through, of course, how the British will seek recompense for the French and Indian War through some of the propaganda that that, that really gets people's blood moving in particularly Boston and Virginia. The other colonies, much less so, but, but really in Boston, Virginia. So again, we kind of fast forward through some things, but yeah, this is what we're trying to do today is get us towards the War for Independence. The next episode will be uh, focusing heavily on the war itself, although coincidentally, not the military history of that. Neither Nick or myself has any interest in discussing military history for a whole host of reasons that we will unpack for that next episode. So if you are a military historian, you're looking for like battle strategies and things along those lines, you're not going to get them here. Uh, but again, we will talk about that uh, next episode. Anything you want to chime in on before we get going, Nick? Nope. Ready to go. Okay. So let's do this. One of the things when we're talking about the buildup to the the uh, War for Independence that is so often overlooked, it's mentioned in textbooks but never as like causal uh, for the War for Independence, is another war. It is commonly known in uh, the United States as the French and Indian War, although it has a couple of other names. More commonly around the world, it's known as the Seven Years' War, which is interesting because technically it states most sources uh, – site at 1754 through 1763. Our mathematicians out there will recognize that's actually nine years. But regardless, uh, another war or another name for this war in Canada in particular is the War of Conquest because of uh, uh, the British colonies uh, basically absorbing what would become Quebec and French Canada, so on and so forth. So anyway, we're going to talk just real briefly about that war. And same thing with the War for Independence. We have zero interest in military history. It's tired. There are numerous military historians out there that are really good at it. And honestly, again, we'll unpack this more. But the more you talk about the military history of various societies dating from the Romans to the Persians to the Mongols to the United States, the more you're actually just glorifying the various different ways people have found to kill each other. And that's not something that we're really super into doing. So... We're going to avoid that. Anyway, let's talk real quickly. Why were the British usually at war somewhere with somebody in the world? What do you think, Nick? The British were always at war. Because they were a colonial powerhouse, definitely, especially during this era. So they were always invading. They had their hands in other people's shit nonstop. Exactly. We know that they, at one point during its peak, which we're actually not to yet, the, the, the peak is really in the 19th century, but at one point, the, Brit the peak of the British Empire, right, that's the old adage, is the sun never set on the British Empire. And people say that fondly without realizing, like, all of those other places did not want the British there and did not always just settle and deal with their civilization programs or, as Rudyard Kipling would later call them, the white man's burden. There was constant resistance. And here's the thing. The British weren't just fighting the people that they were seeking to subjugate and oppress in all of these various places, again, ranging from Eastern Africa to India uh, to uh, the South Pacific to the Caribbean uh, to North and South America – they were also in conflict with the other colonial powers that are competing for those same types of things, the, Sp the Spanish and the Dutch and the French and so on and so forth. So it basically all empires are founded on constant conflict and competition. It's built into the program. Um, we don't have time to dig all the way into the ideological, uh, basically, foundation of imperialism and colonialism. And we've already talked a little bit about it in this podcast anyway. But yes, the British are constantly at war. Um, which is honestly, it's quite taxing on resources. Um, so we'll get into that here in just a second. As far as this particular war that uh, they're about to engage with both the French and the indigenous people of North America, its origins lay in a specific region of the country known as the Ohio Valley. And it's competition for the Ohio Valley, of course, along the Ohio River, uh, that's going to lead to conflict. So I want to discuss, like, why is there conflict over this region? Well, we already know that river systems are wildly important for agricultural growth. And the Ohio Valley is ripe for, uh, for agricultural growth, specifically for grains and, uh, on, and basically foodstuffs. That's its goal. So they're not going to commodify it the way they did the South. 
the breadbasket of the early colonies were what we call the middle colonies, uh, Pennsylvania, Jersey, uh, Delaware to a smaller extent. Anyway, Pennsylvania, needless to say, extends at that time into the Ohio Valley, and they want to extend that as like it's going to be the breadbasket of the British Empire, especially in the Americas, so that they can feed, of course, the South, which is growing commodities, and feed the New England colonies that we talked about a couple episodes ago that are mostly mostly uh, mercantilist at this moment in time. So that's 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 why the British want this area. But unfortunately for the British, people already live there, just like we talked about with Columbus, just like we talked about with Jamestown, just like we talked about with the Pilgrims. There are millions of indigenous people that live in this region, and there's actually even more than there were upon, um, or it's more crowded than it was upon, quote-unquote, discovery of North and South America, because the survivors of the ethnic cleansing campaigns uh, along the coast have been pushed further inland, and now they're having to negotiate relationships with indigenous people that had lived there for generations. So it's actually like they are causing what we would call a migratory crisis, or an immigration crisis, and, or in modern terms, we would flat out call this a refugee crisis uh, for these East Coast indigenous people that have been pushed further and further inland. So this region is already like, again, it's kind of crowded. You have the Delaware, you have the Miami, you have the Shawnee, and we'll be talking more about them after the War for Independence, especially with Tecumseh. Um, But you have all of these groups that have been living there for generations, and they're now having to absorb or at least negotiate uh, with all of these other indigenous people that are being moved there from the East Coast. So, yes, it's already kind of a tenuous situation in the Ohio Valley, just among First Nations. Second, it's not even really the British's, it's not, it's not British land. The French were actually there first, technically also the Dutch as well, but we'll get to what happens to them. The French are there first, and they've already set up a colonial system along the river, but the French colonial system is much less God, I don't want to try and make the French into, like, good guys. Uh, They still have Jesuit missionaries. They're still seeking conversion. There's still destruction and warfare. But it's just to a lesser degree than when the British go places. They're at least... The Catholic missionaries at least trying to convert them and save them, they save their souls rather than just outright eliminate them. And the French, their commodity that they're looking for actually requires the indigenous people to, to live. They're there mostly for the furs, and they want to maintain a trade relationship. Not necessarily an equitable one, they're still a colonizer, but they need the, the indigenous people to, uh, to basically navigate and go find beaver and all those other types of things that you would imagine um, during this colonial period that indigenous people did for the, the, the colonizers. And in return, the French are giving them things that the First Nations want, you know, guns and steel pots and other like more modern tools so that they can create and generate wampum, which we talked about a few episodes ago. That's what that's what the relationship looks like already. So the French are there, but they have mostly just trade forts, forts for trade. So they're not like actually taking land at least not land to the extent that that is going to, again, it's going to just completely revamp or they're going to terraform it to be like some sort of breadbasket for the French Empire. That's not what's happening there. That's what the British want to do. Their colonial imperatives know no bounds. They are operating under the ideologies that motivate them to just grow for growth's sake. Growth's sake. The British are like a plague, uh, for lack of a better term, and, and I hope that is offensive, but that's what they're like. Um, this valley would extend, uh, the breadbasket, but not only the breadbasket, but British imperial, uh, uh, basically territory. Part of this is attached to status. As they continue to push the French or the Dutch out, they get more status among the European entities and become one of the big movers and shakers as far as European economics are concerned. And they then get to control the flow of the mercantilist economy across the Atlantic Ocean. And so part of that is, yeah, it's not just the material reality, there's an ideological reality that's going to be attached um, to this. Now, here's the other thing. One of the, the British are also trying to present opportunity for more British settlers uh, because as we've already discussed in last epi- in some of the episodes prior, one of the things they're running out of uh, is land. The southern colonies are running out of land because honestly the planter class is just greedy. And they don't want to give the yeomen or the under or the lower classes as much land, right? There's competition, right? This is this is proto-capitalism. So those groups, and we talked about like Nathaniel Bacon and so on and so forth, they're going to want more opportunity for land, and this is an this this presents that opportunity. They can get land in the Ohio Valley. Same thing in New England. You have a rising population, and they are overexerting their resources, and they're going to seek opportunity elsewhere because they're still operating under the colonial mindset. So, so they're still operating under the colonial mindset. 
Here's one of the things that we have to think about. Again, one of the reasons many of these groups of people even left Europe to begin with is because they overexerted their resources. They outgrew basically what they could sustainably live on in Europe, and what we're seeing is that is reproduced along the east coast of North America. What's wrong here? Why Did they not learn anything in these centuries of colonization? They've, it's, it's, it's cool that they found this like new territory, or for them this new territory, and that they're going to maybe create something new, a city on the hill as we talked about using John Winthrop's language, and yet nothing changes. They're still operating under the same ideologies that led to problems in Europe and forced them to leave to begin with. It is. It's like a plague. That's why I said the British are like a plague. What do you think? No, I mean, clearly they learned nothing. Yeah. They're just... As long as you're living according to a colonial program, the only way to modify that is to stop it. Otherwise, it just goes. You just keep going. What do you think the ideologies are that, 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 that really guide this, mostly for the British? It's not that the French and the Spanish and Dutch are not also problematic, but the British, just more so than everybody, wherever they go, what, what is it about their ideologies? Which ones are they? I and mean, we talked about Protestantism specifically for this group and its relationship to sort of the capitalist mindset, which okay. isn't fully formed yet in this era, but it's well on its way. They just want more and more and more for more status. It really, it's just status. They don't even need this, like we talked about in the previous episodes, to survive. It's merely for status at this point, for sure. That's it. And then, again, you add in things like colonialism and imperialism and, uh, uh, well, exceptionalism, as we've talked about. All of those things guide this, again, this growth, this growth of, of, of British settlers. And not just British settlers, but others that, that the British are sending in. Uh, Scots, Welsh, um, Scots-Irish. Um, so, yes, all of these other groups that are coming in. Anyway, <clears throat> it's under these auspices that the Ohio Company of Virginia is formed all the way back in 1748. So this is a, a company, and we've already talked about a couple. We talked about Massachusetts Bay Company. We talked about the Virginia Company. Well, here's another company. It's called the Ohio Company of Virginia, uh, and it's formed back in 1748. It's awarded land grants by the king, which is King George II at the time, not King George III. That's the one that, that we're going to talk about with the War for Independence, but it's by King George II. He awards them land grants in the Ohio Valley. And again, this will be like, I don't even know what how many times we've done this at this point. But King George is now giving away lands that he has no say-so over giving away. <clears throat> as far as Europeans are concerned, the French and the Dutch both have claims there. And of course, we know that First Nations call this home. And yet King George feels so special about himself that he awards land grants to the Ohio Valley or the Ohio Company of Virginia. I mean, these aren't even like British. It's not even British territory yet. It's straight up. They haven't even ever been there yet. And yeah, the yeah. French already have trade posts there and shit. Yeah. So it's, so it's going to be wildly aggressive on his part. Now, what is the Ohio Company? We know that the Virginia Company eventually is able, <clears throat> excuse me, to exploit tobacco. And we know that the Massachusetts Bay Company is able to become mercantilist. There's fishing, there's lumber, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Ohio Valley or the Ohio Company, this is what's interesting about them. And this is going to set up a very, again, exploitative relationship that each and every one of us, including our listeners, including myself and Nick, all actually still kind of subscribe to today. They are strictly a land speculation company. I want to stress that, <clears throat> that these are speculators that are going to have ties to wealthy landowners and bankers. So they're actually, as far as we're concerned, in a utilitarian sense, useless. They're actually not farmers. They're not really traders themselves. They, they merely want to take this land and commodify it and then sell it to other British settlers. So they're basically like a middleman. And of course, they're going to be a layer of exploitative bureaucracy that we're all, I mean, they are like the ancient, the ancient, like we're going that far back, excuse me. They are the colonial Chase Manhattan or Wells Fargo or whatever. Like they are, mere, they merely exist as a layer of exploitation over the common workers. Um, I and think of this course, is like you're stressing a super important point to make because Prior to this, as long as you were free Christian, you could go out on the frontier and stake out land basically anywhere. You didn't have to buy it from anyone. There is nothing like that. So th this Ohio company is going to change all that in the Ohio Valley, at least specifically, where like if you're now a settler that wants to establish some land there, you have to buy it. 
And keep in mind, like Jared said, they've added no value to this land whatsoever. They literally are just going to say, hey, this is mine. If you want it, you can buy it. They've done nothing beyond that whatsoever. And we have to keep in mind, what is a speculator? Whether it's a land speculator, whether it is a Wall Street speculator, these people are are merely modern forms of like the Oracle at Delphi or like the psychics or seers or whatever. Basically, they're trying to predict the future. They will go out and they will try and predict what this land can produce, its yield. They will then carve it up into these productive pieces or productive pieces using their lens. But here's the key. When they're working with landowners, the people that are going to invest, basically I should probably call them investors, um, and then the banks themselves, they're going to – of course the speculators are going to decide and, again, make up numbers and figures and assumptions that are not going to benefit the future, quote-unquote, British settlers that are going to buy this land. It's going to benefit the banks and the people that own the actual deeds on the lands especially when we're talking about giving out loans. Again, this is a relationship. This is like the unholy triangle of basically getting people to work the land for you and you reap most of the immediate reward. But what you're selling people is this idea of rugged individualism that you can go out and buy this piece of land and you can take, since we know you just got here and you don't have any wealth, we're going to help you out by giving you a loan. And we get to dictate all the terms of that loan, right? We're going to dictate the interest rates and the terms and things along those lines. And you're so super desperate for an opportunity that you're going to bite off on this. And here's the thing. We predict, we think it might be this type, it might be this productive. But if it's not, huh, shit, too bad. We're not going to help you out. And if you can't pay your note back to us, we get that land back and we get to rinse and repeat and do this all again with another British settler. What do we see in common here with like the modern, like the modern framing of the 30 year mortgage? Like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same thing. The th funny thing is though, this is arguably even worse what's going on in the colonial period because they're doing all like land speculators exist today, right? You buy a plot of land that you think is going to increase in value and then you sell it at the increased value. But here they don't even have to buy the land in the first place. They're just straight taking it. Like they're staying, staking claim to it and they've paid nothing. But they're, they're just going stealing to get, it. Yeah, they're going to get this. They're stealing it from both the French and the First Nations. Yeah. So they're not really investing heavily in any regard there. And then I they mean, get of course, the like adamant capitalists like, well, there was cost. They had to get an army and go and take the land and like defeat the. But like that's yeah, rationalization. It's yeah, it's yeah that's 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 honestly that's intellectually disingenuous. And the fact that we mm -hmm. actually have these conversations to this day regarding like corporate personhood and things along those lines is I, I, it's problematic on so many levels. But those that's for future episodes. Mm -hmm. We'll get to corporate personhood for sure in this podcast. Anyway, like, yes, we see this where you're going to work really hard for like this idea. It's an idea. Yes. Does it work for some people? It actually does. I, we'd be completely remiss to, to say that there were not individuals that ended up biting off on this land after the war, investing in it and working it and being able to reap their own rewards. That did happen. That absolutely happened. But there's also an equal amount of failure stories where people are like losing everything trying to pay back these banks who are, of course, beholden, or excuse me, paying off these banks that are beholden to the landowners or the people that actually own the deeds and who are all grateful for the speculators fluffing up prices or manipulating the quote-unquote free market. And that's another thing that we have to keep in mind. This I, mean, idea I guess there is a, a main difference there is that nowadays the banks actually hold the deeds themselves. So that is true. And and well and and this relationship is actually just starting. It will yeah. be, it will it will become this way very quickly in that regard. But we have to keep in mind like well we'll skip that for now. We'll just keep right on moving. Here's the other thing. This is one of the arguments they're making. When they look at like the beautiful, untapped Ohio Valley, aside from some some nice little French trade forts dotting its landscape and, of course, from some First Nation villages, and they see beautiful forests and they see un, like just teeming wildlife and flora and fauna, and, and this is just this, this wonderful place. What do the British eyes see? Oh, they just see resources. That's they it. see it in resources. It's they dollar see dollar signs. signs. Yep. It's gross. This is, and again, we see this. This is, this is one of the real, like, breaks where we see our relationship, even with the natural world, really change here. That is, like, again, it is uniquely what would become American. Like, I mean, even the French were, wanted the pelts. They couldn't destroy yeah, the environment or else their whole trade was ruined. Yeah, exactly. So the French, even for, like, commodification of pelts, which was not necessarily the, the best thing in the world, they still recognize you need to keep the forest more or less intact. For you to, yeah, to, to basically get the pelts you need. The British are not going to be this way. They want it all gone. And again, we still see that to this day. 
Um, and, and again, when we look at the Ohio River, this beautiful river that was not just like a beautiful river for fishing, but it's like the highway of trade. I mean, if we look at it now, we've got DuPont just dumping chemicals, dumping chemicals in this river. For whose benefit? For whose benefit? For theirs, obviously. Again, profit. Neither the French or indigenous were properly exploiting the, the land in English eyes, so the English felt compelled to go and, and, and properly exploit this land and cultivate it. When we look at the Ohio Company of Virginia, some of its major investors are some interesting characters, uh, and this is going to play a role in conflict. Uh, they include two, uh, two brothers, both of them. They're named Lawrence and Augustine, and their last name is interesting. It's Washington. Very famous family, a family that is going to play a crucial role in the formation of what would become the United States. Well, here we see them getting started by exploiting land, and it's the Washington brothers. Uh, alongside another important investor in this company uh, would be the governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, um, which is, again, this is interesting. So what we see here are people that are already of status basically investing in this company to grow their wealth because they are trying to become – and none of these people are actually even Puritan. But here's the thing. It's now attached to being elect, a status, an exceptionalism, growth for growth's sake. And that's it. Do they care about the individual British settlers that are going to maybe bite off in this land and either succeed or fail? No, they don't care. They don't care. Dinwiddie orders another Washington, the most famous of the bunch actually, little Georgie, to go basically let the French know that they are trespassing. So these are the orders. This is one of George Washington's like earliest quote-unquote military actions. Uh, uh, and he's, he's ordered basically to go out and let the French know that they are trespassing on English land. And basically the French come back with the reply of go fuck yourself, um, which is, 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 I paraphrased, of course, there, but it is like one of my favorite replies, and yeah, I'm always reminded. Yeah, I don't know how to say that in French. Yeah, know. I don't know how to say that in French either. <laughs> but I'm always reminded of, and it reminds me of like the Monty Python clip where like the the English, like who is it? It's it's like Arthur and the Knights or whoever it is, and they're outside like that French castle, and they're looking for the Holy Grail, right? Mm -hmm. And again, the French do the French taunting, like I fart in your general <laughs> direction, like that's one of my yeah. favorite clips. Well, it's the same thing, except the French in this case did not like yeah. catapult a cow on top of them, which would have been super sweet. Uh, but basically, yes, the French are like this. We're here. We have a relationship. We've been here much longer than you. Go away, George. Washington, alongside Will Trent and a few of uh, their remaining First Nation allies, and I must stress this, most First Nations regarding conflicts, even before this, would choose to side oftentimes with the Dutch or the French over the British. It, mean, it doesn't mean that none sided with the British. The Mingo were one. Uh, the Mohawk, as we talked about in a prior episode, would be another. They were Anglophiles themselves. But basically, Washington, Will Trent, a few Mingos, are then sent back to confront the French near Fort Duquesne without, to the best of my knowledge, uh, if I am incorrect on this, leave a comment, but I've not been able to find it, without the, con the consent of the Crown. Now, clearly, they had the consent of the Ohio Company, and they had the consent of Governor Robert Dinwiddie, but I must stress, when George Washington goes back to confront the French, this is basically an international action that the Crown did not consent to, again, to the best of my knowledge. Now, it's alluded to by the fact that King George II gave them, like, this land, so I guess he assumes something might happen. Um, but again, this is going to basically start off an international war, um, and George is, is, is really at the center of this. It's at this point we get the very controversial Battle of Jumonville, which takes place on May 27th of 1754. There, of course, are still to this day questions about who started it. You research it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, it doesn't really matter who started it. I tend to side towards the fact that it is Washington or his troops that started this battle, uh, uh, which eventually this, this assassination of Jumonville um, leads to basically international conflict between the British and the French. Long story short, after this battle, George Washington and his forces are forced to retreat back to Fort Necessity, which they construct. <clears throat> and he signs um, an admission of the assassination of Jumonville. But there's also the debate where Washington actually ends up blaming his uh, his Mingo um, cohorts, so the First Nations. And this was... I mean, it's kind of shrewd in that he doesn't want to take blame for the British themselves, and maybe he can cast it off onto the First Nations. They're the ones that actually shot this this French official. 
But it's also actually not very smart because what few First Nation allies that the British had are basically going to turn away from the British at this moment in time, or at least the Mingo are. I always just love the name of Fort Necessity because like Jared said, they have to retreat. So they build this fort for them to retreat to. And the name is just funny to me because it's like necessity. Well, why was it necessary? Oh, it was necessary because we were getting our asses kicked. Or yeah, that's why yeah. it was necessary. Yeah, George's early military career is, is, not, is not super impressive. Uh, I mean, yeah, he does a little better in the next war, as you all know. But even that requires a lot, a lot, a lot of French help. Um, so we'll get to that, though. Anyway, here we go. At this moment in time, or near this moment in time, what is it? This is approximately a little about a week and a half later. The Albany Congress of 1754 takes place. So it's on June 7th, 7, or 1754. 24 delegates from seven colonies meet. In, interestingly, and this is key, also they invite sachems, which again, we already talked about what sachems are, from the Iroquois League of Peace and Power. Um to meet at the Albany Congress, basically deciding how can we unite to fight this this war that's about to pop off with the French and the other First Nations. I'm going to give these representatives a little bit of credit. The Albany Congress doesn't really lead to a whole lot of, of, of anything like groundbreaking, except for the fact that it's one of the first times that delegates from set, from different colonies basically come together and decide they're going to try to work together on something, which of course we know is going to be very important in the upcoming War for Independence that we're going to talk about. This is one of the, the, the moments where this is really a, an early example of this. Again, 24 delegates from seven different colonies. The other thing that I want to focus on regarding the Albany Congress of 1754 is the fact that the Iroquois were there and they had a profound, and this is often overlooked, a profound impact on one Benjamin Franklin. There's even imagery of this in that he watched their sort of representative uh, going back and forth democratic way of making choices. And it did. It had an impact on him. No one can say 100% for sure if Ben Franklin saw this and he brought these ideas to later continental congresses, but we know for a fact it left an impression on him. And again, it's one of those things that we don't even really explore in U.S. history classes that perhaps part of the representative republic that we live in could have been inspired a little bit by the First Nations themselves. Why do you think we leave this out? I mean, it's super clear based on the whole reason we're creating this podcast we definitely don't want to like to think that this american democracy that we created could at all be influenced by anyone else but especially not indigenous yeah it's gotta populace. be white dudes yeah. white dudes do everything in the world couldn't be first nations right yep. like yeah exactly all right anyway benjamin franklin alongside thomas hutchinson another figure we're going to be talking about a lot in this episode basically lead a plan to unify the colonies to to share in war and defense policies. That's their main goal. They want to share in war and defense policies uh, and costs because, again, we're about to go to war. So they're not necessarily focused on all the other things that might unite the colonies. They're just focused on the war and defense policies. What they decide is they need 48 representatives and a president general for this to actually be a coming together of of the colonies. It's actually turned down by quite a few colonists. And I, I, I will come back to this after the war for independence, but I must stress that for a very long period of time, even after the United States wins its independence from England, people didn't necessarily like this idea of a fully federal unified country. They identified more with their colony or eventually what we would call their state, or even in some, some cases, their local township or their local city. This idea of being American meant jack shit to a lot of people. They were Virginian, they were New Yorker, they were Bostonian, they were whatever. That meant more to them than being like, again, united. Now, now, at this point, again, American isn't even on the table. They're still British colonists. They're going to fight the French. Okay. The other problem that they run into is the Iroquois League of Peace and Power is, again, the most important confederacy in the region as far as like a military ally. And it is made up of, at that moment in time, six different nations. They added another one, the Tuscarora. And out of those six nations, the only ones that choose to, to, to vehemently side with the British, again, are the Mohawks. So this is the second time that the Mohawk have decided to side with the British against other indigenous people. And again, it's not necessarily calling anyone out. Can't call out anybody on the First Nation side of this. Uh, these are difficult, difficult decisions to make. Um, but it is interesting to note that the Mohawk do decide to side with the British here. Okay. Combat in North America really begins um, with a British three-pronged attack. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time or really any time on the 
the the actual like battles or stuff, but I want to like talk about how the war progresses super fast. It starts with a three-pronged attack. The British are going to attack Fort Duquesne, which is in western Pennsylvania, Fort Niagara. We, of course, all know where that is. And their aim is to get into or get towards Lake Champlain. The French are ready for all of this with many First Nation allies, and the British are suffering losses um, basically through 1555. Uh, interestingly, at one of these battles— 1755. Yeah, CR, CR 1755. Um, one of the generals, General Braddock, actually dies um, at one of these battles, and George Washington assumes a brief command. So this is one of these early instances where we can see that George threw— Fortunate circumstances is kind of rising through uh, the ranks. The other thing that we forget here is the French and British are like global entities at this point in time. So the war goes global. So again, if we just go all the way back to this little incident that happens outside Fort Duquesne and the, the Battle of Jumonville started by George Washington and his troops – it basically leads to a world war before we would call these world wars. Like there's going to be fighting in North America clearly as we see here. But anywhere that the French and British share colonies, there's going to be fighting. So needless to say, in Europe, there's going to be war. In the Caribbean, there's going to be war. Even in the South Pacific, there's going to be war, which brings in other colonial entities like the Spanish, right? So this war is is truly a world war before World War One or World War Two. Um, the British advance uh, is actually relatively unimpressive, which is interesting because the British usually are seen as like one of the more powerful empires of, of, of the time period. But the French are not just good at fighting. They have the Native American guerrilla warfare. And of course, the Native Americans know the territory and it's really giving the British problems. I stress the guerrilla warfare piece here heavily because some of these British colonists are going to be watching this and they're going to maybe borrow these tactics later on when they themselves are fighting the British. So they're noticing how the First Nations are able to fight. It's at this point, like in the war, closer to like 1757, where Prime Minister, all the way back in England, back in Parliament, William Pitt turns the tide of the war. And it's really this simple. It's He doesn't give some like, I mean, he may have give a, a rousing speech. But what he really does is he decides he's able to win enough hearts and minds in both the House of Lords and House of Commons to commit all resources of the empire against the French, the First Nations, and the Spanish. So basically, it becomes a total war effort. All resources that England has at that moment in time are directed towards this world war. What do you think of that? Like all resources. This is somewhat unusual at the time period because, again, when you're talking about war in the Renaissance period or the Middle Ages or whatever, like there's a war and it's yes there are so many resources dedicated to them but it's not where like the state then operates wholly like in what we call total war that was kind of unusual what do you think of that i mean you can think of it either as like i think it's kind of ridiculous when you think of it in that terms like this little skirmish with the french and the indigenous peoples in like north america was this important but i guess to his credit maybe like this was genius if he had known what the impact of this was going to be going forward as far as British territories were concerned, but. Right. And this, this imposition of resources is, we're talking about production of like weapons and ammunition and foodstuffs and all of this uh, uniforms going out and uh, conscription. I, I wanted to say recruiting. Let's not be silly here. Conscripting troops and of course sending them to the various theaters of war, whether they're again in the North, North America or in the Caribbean or in Europe. Like, just total war by the British. Although I guess like 20 years later, maybe he was regretting this decision, but yeah, as good as, yeah. Um, and the re rejuvenation and reinforcements lead to successive victories by the British. Uh, and I'll, I'll stick to North America here since this is our concern at Fort Duquesne, at Fort, Ni Fort Niagara, at Fort Ticonderoga. And impressively, this is why it's still known as the War of Conquest in Canada. They take Quebec and Montreal through 1760. Fighting begins to slow down in the North American theater by about 1760, although it does continue elsewhere. Again, Europe, Caribbean, South Pacific. Um, and it's also during this war that we see the very famous King George III. He ascends to the throne during this, during the uh, French and Indian War. As the war begins to slow down globally uh, and sporadic fighting, again, kind of dies out, especially in Ohio, uh, a Treaty of Paris is signed, and it's obviously in Paris, in 1763. This will be the first Treaty of Paris we're talking about. The second one will be, of course, the, the one at the end of the War for Independence. In this treaty, it's interesting. The British, of course, get what they wanted. They get Ohio um, so that they can, you know— 
create their their breadbasket there and sell the lands and certain individuals that are of elite status can profit uh, off of the sweat of other people's brows. The other thing that's really important here is they get Canada. Uh, this is super profound if you really think about it, that the British have basically been or had been the colonial masters of Canada from 1760, uh, 1763 on, and yet the parts they get at that moment in time are still to this day fiercely proud of their French heritage. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think part of that is like a, a, a very rich cultural history of the French uh, linguistically, religiously, in, uh, ideologically. That's part of it. But I also think it, it is just the, the grading – disgustingness of everything British at the time. Um, no offense now if you're British, uh, whatever. But yeah, at the time, it's wildly problematic. So the people that, that were in Quebec, in Montreal, even though they're technically now subjects of Britain, they remain fiercely French, um, which will also play a role in one of the intolerable acts we'll get to later. Um, anyway, everything west of the Ohio goes to Spain. So they actually get quite a bit out of engaging in the Seven Years' War. Um, France does get to keep some of its holding, uh, some of its holdings in the Caribbean. Um, a very famous one being, uh, Saint-Domingue, which eventually will have a revolution known as the Haitian Revolution. Um, and here's the key to the Treaty of Paris that I must call out right now and, and I want to talk about and I want Nick to talk about for just a second. There is, uh, millions of people that are not re- represented in Paris, uh, because Europeans are awful, um, at that moment in time. Um, Who's not represented at this great treaty that is just dividing up lands? I mean, obviously, the indigenous populations that were already there before any of these people got there. Okay, why are they not represented? Here's the thing. They're they're clearly like a player in this. They fought in the war. Some of them even fought on the quote-unquote winning side, like the Mohawk, right? right? And they're still not represented. It's not like they don't recognize them as like movers and shakers on the continent, but none are invited to partake in this Treaty of Paris. Yeah. It gets in the way of what these three powers want to accomplish in all sides. Which leads to a rebellion. So resulting from the Treaty of Paris and the ignorance, of course, or well, I guess, yes, the wrongful omission of people, uh, First Nations at the Treaty of Paris, and it even dates back to 1761, continual British disrespect dating back to 1761, a rebellion will form. And it is the rebellion of, of course, the very famous sachem uh, of the Ottawa nation, Pontiac. And of course, uh, we honor this amazing man by naming uh, uh, poorly made General Motors cars after him. They don't even make them anymore. But yeah, that's that's how we honor this man. Anyway, um, I don't even think it comes from him. They, they, Pontiac named it after the town, which was named after him, right? Pontiac, Michigan, whatever. Listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. There's some turd town in Michigan called Pontiac, and it's named after like this wonderful man. Anyway, okay. He is an Ottawa sachem that led a multinational resistance against the British civilians, settlers, and military. And I want to stress that. This is actually a shrewd tactic if you are going to resist. Because again, Pontiac, uh, uh, basically again, he, he sees that that this is this is an ethnic cleansing campaign and that there is no stopping these groups of people. First Nations are relatively well connected. Pontiac knows what happened to the people on the East Coast. He's literally just saw what happened to the people of the Ohio Valley. This is an ethnic cleansing campaign and he is going to form a multinational resistance just like King Philip did. He's going to go and speak to other First Nations and try and get them on board to basically resist the British move westward and he begins by raiding settlements and buildings and well raiding settlements and the small forts to build momentum to ramp up to larger projects to actually take on townships and villages and it leads to a bloody ends for many um and he here's the thing this is one of his strategy and it bloody ends for many again british settlers like they are dying he like they the native americans have had enough and they are now killing these settlers and in my opinion i'll flat out say it on this podcast rightfully so like, what do you expect them to do? Just lay down and just be genocided? That's not a word, but I just made it up. Like, no, they have every right to resist. This was their continent. These white people showed up. They have every right to resist. Um, so yeah, it's a bloody ends for many, but here's one of the things. Pontiac was actually kind of shrewd. He's kind of a little bit of a propagandist here. In every one of the raids, whether it was on a settlement or a village, he kept he let one person survive so that they could record his grievances and give his grievances to the British colonial authorities, which is actually kind of interesting 
basically like, here are the grievances. I'm leaving you alive. If you want me to stop doing these things, maybe you all should again, like stop advancing into the land. Because again, we keep signing treaties with you. I've seen other nations sign treaties with you. Our neighboring group, the Huron signed a treaty with you. You took their land. We've seen the all the various Iroquois uh, First Nations sign treaties with you, and you continue to just push them west. We know what's going on. We saw what happened with the Shawnee. We saw what happened with the Delaware. We saw what happened with the Miami. This is how we are going to choose to react now. And the British, rather than trying to come to a, a diplomatic end to this rebellion by Pontiac, they respond, of course, with military forces, we might imagine. Violence apparently begets violence. It's interesting, though. It's not just military violence they use. This is one of the earlier examples we have of biological warfare. Thanks, Brits. Anyway, we have a recording here from a Colonel Bouquet in 1765. These are his words, not mine. This is a primary source. Of course, we have to start digging into these now. He says, again, Colonel Bouquet, P.S., I will try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets that may fall in their hands, taking care, however, not to get to the, get the disease myself. As it is a pity to oppose good men against them, I wish we could make use of the Spaniards' method and hunt them with English dogs, supported by rangers and some light horse, who I think would effectively extirpate or remove that vermin. Holy shit. Biological warfare, calling them vermin. What is he looking for? He's looking for extermination. Well, and the fact that this is just like, oh, P.S., I'm going to, yeah, the fact that this is just a postscript to some other letter, like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what do you think of this? Like, here it is. We've heard of, like, the, and and we know what the blankets are. The blankets are full of what? Smallpox. Yeah, they're inoculated with smallpox. Mm -hmm. This is biological warfare. Not only is this an attempt at ethnic cleansing, the British, who consider themselves such honorable and just fighters, this is about as cowardly as you can get. Also, this is straight in the face of the narrative yeah. of like, well, the natives like didn't have all of these diseases. So when the settlers came, they just happened to catch them and like die. Like this is absolutely intentional. Yeah. 100%. Fuck that narrative. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. British honor. These are cowards. These are cowards. And again, this legacy has carried on to waging war through to this day and the ways that we've been mustard gas in World War One. And yeah, oh my God, it's just. Anyway, okay. Well, I like how he says, I'll do this with the blankets. I wish we could use dogs. That would be even easier. Yeah. Well, in the Spanish, we we do know. uh, We didn't do this when we did Columbus because we just stopped after Columbus talking about the Spanish basically. But yeah, they used to – they did. They hunted uh, the Taino down with with English hunting dogs and and just let them just do what they did, rip, rip people to pieces. It's interesting that Colonel Bouquet actually does get a reply here, obviously. He gets a reply from his general. And his general is a man named Amherst. He adds, P.S., and I quote, You will do well to try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try every other method that can serve to extirpate this execrable race. God, the language is just... I should be very glad your scheme for hunting uh, them down by dogs could take effect, but England is at too great a distance to think of that at present. Any thoughts, I mean, on this just exchange? It's just one brief exchange between a colonel, and it's brief. It's in the PSs, so they don't even, like, take the time to, like, really go through the nuance. It's just like, yes, I'm going to put smallpox. I'm going to inoculate these blankets with smallpox, and we're going to see what happens. I mean, let's just put this in the – take, like, a 30,000-foot view for a second. So this is the British going in. Claiming land that wasn't theirs, and not it's not even like vacant land. Both the French and the Dutch to some capacity, and obviously the indigenous, already live there. So they go in and say, this is ours, and everyone that's already there tells them to fuck off. So then they start a war, and they defeat these people. Then they go back and try to actually take the land that they just won in the war, and the indigenous people that still live there are now rebelling against this. And so now they're like, oh, cool, we'll just exterminate all of them. Like, what the fuck? Seriously. That was much more succinct than the last 30 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> Nick nailed it. That's Myth is America right there. Should make a video. Oh, that's what we're doing. Um, okay. Anyway, this war kind of ends in a stalemate. And the reason I say it ends in a stalemate is because King George III uh, basically creates the Proclamation of 1763, uh, which officially makes the Appalachian Mountains the border. It's, of course, hard to defend because there's not, you know, whatever fences or anything in their mountains. And while they're not as impressive as, like, the Rockies or anything, they're mountains. And, yeah, I mean, you can 
you can do all kinds of different things in there and nobody's going to be watching you, especially in the 1700s. And this necessitates, though, the reason the proclamation is interesting to me is it necessitates a continued British military presence in the colonies to protect the settlers. What this means is some of the British forces, or even after the war, uh, the French and Indian War, are going to have to stay in the colonies to protect the settlers. I'm stressing this. I am stressing this because... Let's rewind. William Pitt nearly bankrupts the empire to win the war, and now they have to keep troops permanently stationed on the border to protect these settlers. All of this costs what, Nick? Money. Money. Resources. Okay. This is wildly important. This angers the settlers. The settlers have the balls to be angry at their king for basically creating this border so that they stop dying. He's basically trying to keep them safe because he's like, look, we have limited resources. I can't keep sending troops over every time you guys start a skirmish with these First Nations. We agreed with them that we're going to stop at the Appalachians. So King George, oddly, is actually trying to hold up somewhat of a, an agreement with the Native Americans after the uh, after Pontiac's Rebellion. And it is the individual settlers, and we'll start calling them Americans at this point because they're starting to get a little pissed off with their British overlords at this point it is these americans that are so greedy and ignorant that they 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 want to risk their lives by taking native american land and then have the audacity and the privilege to expect the british to protect them when they do so Mm -hmm. how does that happen entitlement straight up you want to talk about why we're the most entitled society that's ever existed in 2019 here's more of it Mm -hmm. it we're founded on it i keep saying that every podcast but that's why we're doing this this is myth is america this is who we are um, it limits their freedom. It limits their freedom to go what? Go die at the hands of Pontiac and his rebels? Like, why? It just doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, when somebody dies, who do you call for help? Daddy King George. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unbelievable. This actually relates a lot to Bacon's rebellion, because that's exactly what they were complaining about. Bacon yeah. was pissed that they weren't protecting the settlers on the frontier. Further east at this point. Yeah. So here's the biggest shocker of all, listeners. War costs money. Who knew? Weird. Yeah, you fight a war for seven to nine years all around the world that your colonists started. I cannot stress that enough. The o- Virginia or the Ohio Company of Virginia more or less starts this war, this land speculation company, so that they can exploit the land, sell it off, make profits, get individuals to go buy that land, and then produce grain to feed the empire like there's a whole plan in place. It's a decent business plan, I suppose. But they start the war. Well, and going back to what you said, they did – the king grants them the land, but they go out and start this conflict without his influence at all and his approval. And who fights the war for them? The British military. The British military fights the war for the colonists. And I'm going to make one of the weirdest flips because everyone knows how I feel about the British imperialism. But I'm going to now begin to look at things through their lens because we have to be the devil's advocate here. If you're the British – Think about this. You just fought the war. You nearly, again, you emptied the coffers, basically, to win this war for your colonists so that they can have this land. And yes, in the long run, you'll probably profit from this, too, for all the reasons we discussed. Influence, breadbasket, resources. Yes, you're going to get some of this back over time, for sure. But the most immediate people that are going to profit for your sacrifice, your British soldiers dying over in North America, which for them is a foreign land are the colonists themselves. They're the ones that are most immediately going to benefit from your sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And you feel rightful in asking for them them for just a little bit of recompense. And some of those colonists are going to lose their damn minds. They're going to lose their damn minds. And this is where the false narrative really just like, it takes off. This is like the most important part right here. War costs money. We're keeping in mind who benefited most from the costly French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. It is the colonists. And here's the thing. Now I'm going to break them up into classes. It's not just all the colonists. It's the elite colonists, right? That's who the Ohio Valley or the Ohio Company represents, the elites. Bankers and lawyers and speculators and investors and blah, 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 blah. People that already have wealth. That's that's who benefited the most from this war. Yeah, the most you could have benefited if you were just a commoner is now you can Maybe, have the luxury yeah. of taking out a loan and getting some of that land. Yeah, that's, that's what the you best get. benefit you can get if you're not part of the elite. And then you are beholden to them. And mm-hmm. they control you exponentially more than King George ever did. Okay. So, 
the both Parliament and the King are well aware of this. They're not ignorant over there, uh, you know, even though they're across the uh, the Atlantic Ocean. And they decide, okay, we need to generate some revenue so that we can more immediately recoup this investment in the war that we fought for the colonists. So they're going to co- commit to two different revenue-generating acts. The most famous would be Grenville's Sugar Act, or also known as the Revenue Act of 1764. Now, this is an interesting act. Its roots, it's not even actually a new act. That's the funny thing. Its roots can be dated back to the Molasses Act of 1733, where essentially um, colonists were charged uh, six pence per gallon or a six pence per gallon tax uh, on non-British molasses to keep the colonists from buying the cheaper um, other other molasses imports from either the French or the Dutch or whoever else might be importing this molasses. So it's basically six pence per gallon. Um, And it already existed, dating back to 1733. The Grenville Sugar Act is actually going to lower the tax to three pence per gallon. It's going to cut it in half. But the difference is they're actually going to enforce it now. It had been very loosely enforced prior to this. Now they're going to enforce it. Uh, this higher enforcement is actually, ironically, of course, going to lead to more smuggling. We already know how that works when, when, when you start doing this with, you know, commodities like molasses or later alcohol or whatever, right? It's going to lead to smuggling as well. But the lower rate was the idea was that it would promote actual payment. So like, all right, we'll come to an agreement, not six pence, three pence. We'll enforce it harder and you won't be so pissed because it's less than, than six pence. Here's the thing. Why are they targeting molasses slash sugar? In this case, why are the British targeting that specific good? Because you can use it to make rum. Okay. And why is rum so important here? Because it is, it's what the wealthy drink. Okay. It's that, well, and pirates, but um, yeah. <laughs> but that's because the pirates in the Caribbean. Anyway, whatever. Here's the thing. The British are not dumb. They know that rum is one of, it is not the only, but one of the drinks that was enjoyed by the upper class of colonists. They also know that it is the upper class of colonists that, again, gained the most from the war. So naturally, they should be the ones that bear the brunt of paying England back for the war, that England fought for them. Yeah, let's just it like It's completely use... rational and logical and not out of place whatsoever. That's what I was going to say. We're trying to take the British lens for just a minute, right? So it's, okay, guys, the wealthy elite in the colonies. We just fought a war for you so you could have even more land and probably profit even more. And so we need to pay ourselves back a little bit. So we've had this tax that was six pence a gallon on uh, molasses, for, but we've never enforced it. So we're going to kind of meet you in the middle. We're going to cut that in half to three pence, but you're going to actually have to pay it. Like, that's completely reasonable and rational from the British perspective. 100%. Uh, Not in the case of some wealthy colonists who, again, lose their damn minds over this. All right. The next one that we have to talk about is the Stamp Act of 1765. Uh, Again, most listeners are at least aware of it. It's basically a tax... Uh, a varied cost. It is. It, it's. It's. It's a varied cost depending on the document. But basically, it's a cost on all official documents that include things like official licenses, land grants, court documents, newspapers, pamphlets, etc. Basically, these things had to have the stamp on them. You basically purchase the paper with the stamp already on it, and then you produce whatever it is you're producing. Um, maybe we can, you know, link an image of what the official stamp looked like uh, on the YouTube channel. But regardless, you needed this stamp. English colonists were hired to administer this stamp at an 8% commission or so. So there, there, there are individual colonists that are going to have to basically collect from individuals, the other colonists, their co-colonists, and get commission on it, which of course is going to upset some people. But here's the thing. The British are very clearly targeting a specific demographic here. This really isn't a target on all colonists. This is a target on the elite colonists that, again, were the ones, for the fourth time now, benefited mostly from the French and Indian War and the British investment in that war, of which, again, the British fought, funded, and died for, these colonists. And they're just asking for them to pay them back a little bit via this this Stamp Act. Yeah, so this would have been like on like customs forms from ships coming in the port and land documents and newspapers that would be published 
legal documents, etc. No common colonist is using these documents frequently at all, but the elite are using them on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, especially the Ohio Company, right? They land land grants and official licenses; those are on there. They require these, so they're having to do use these every day. So they're the ones bearing the brunt of this tax. Whereas the everyday colonists may only have three of these documents in their entire life. But that shows that the British are actually relatively intelligent here. Like, why would we tax all the colonists the same when all of the colonists are not benefiting from what we did? It's actually relatively smart. Okay, now, how did they justify these taxes? Here's where um, our, uh, our listeners, a couple of them, maybe not agreeing with our framing here, are all losing their collective mind because they're saying to themselves over and over again in their heads, it's not about the taxation. It's about the fact that they weren't represented. Oh, God. Yes, they weren't represented. Those poor colonists, man. Whew. No taxation without representation. I almost want to put a yellow sticker with a dumb snake on the back of my pickup truck right now. Don't tread on me, please. Um, here's the problem with that. That's not actually the most solid argument. It was a divided argument at the time. Now, we already know they're, the colonists, we're taking the British lens here, the colonists did feel they were not adequately, adequately represented, so to speak. But that's actually just kind of like, that's, that's, that's just an excuse. If we look at other arguments, one from a, one Thomas Watley here, he actually made a relatively sound argument that the colonists are indeed represented. They're represented by something he called virtual representation, and it's actually a pretty in interesting argument. I'll break it down really quickly here. Essentially, most of you should know, and but most actually don't, that the British already had a constitution. In fact, what much of what becomes the American constitution is slight jack is, is straight up jacked from the British constitution. Many of the ideas. So we're not wholly even original in the constitution. The English already had one. And it's ironic that at the end of the war, we jack many of our ideas from our former oppressor, but that's a whole, we'll get to that much later on. But regardless, they had a constitution and in this constitution, there was a separation of powers and checks and balances. This should all sound very familiar to you. The British already had this. And so what Thomas Watley would argue is that parliament in particular represented the popular will of all British citizens. Uh, the elite, of course, it's it's not equal, but the elite are represented by the House of Lords, and then the commish British, common British citizens are represented in the House of Commons. And that means that the colonists that have achieved citizenship, and we can date this back to the Navigation Acts of the, oh gosh, now I don't even remember the date, 1650s or whenever they were, these colonists that did achieve British citizenship, which of course are the, the elite have, are represented as common British citizens in the House of Commons. And then, of course, then the colonists would come back and say, but our lives are different here. And so we should have somebody that understands what things are like here. And we need some of those direct representatives in the parliament. And that's why it's only virtual representation. It's not good enough. To which I would reply, if I were British in 1765, you fucking left. Mm -hmm. You made that choice. Yeah, you can move back any time if you yeah. want that. We just fought a war for you. If that's not representation, you whined and you cried for more land. We sent our troops over, bankrupt the coffers, and won this war for you. Come back. Hang out. No? Cool? You already have the highest standard of living in the entire British Empire? And we'll get to that also later. Oh, okay. Poor you. Playing the smallest violin in the world. That's how I would have responded. What a privileged, entitled, just, ugh, they're like children. Colonial resistance to unfair taxation would really take off at this time. Pamphleteering was one of the more popular forms of resistance that really started in Boston. Um, some of the more popular pamphleteers were folks like Sam Adams and Patrick Henry. Um, but we're going to get more into these individuals in the very next episode. Because again, we really just wanted today to set up like, Again, the context for why resistance even begins in the colonies. I mean, it goes from like Pontiac's Rebellion um, and, of course, the proclamation of a 1763 to the imposition of these acts, which, again, at least initially are completely rational and logical by the British. They should be able to ask for recompense for this war. Now, to preview our next episode, the British will 
to, to then not let them completely off the hook pass some more acts that would be pretty dumb. And we will get to those dumb acts as well. So the British actually react very poorly here. So don't, don't think we're going to turn them into to heroes by any stretch of the imagination. But these first two, the Sugar Act and the Stamped Act, led to resistance. And that resistance began with pamphleteering. Nick's going to talk a little bit about the pamphleteering excuse me, in the next episode. And eventually we'll talk about some of the actions and formations of organizations of resistance, the propaganda piece. That's going to be the next episode. Um, and we're going to frame that a little bit differently, not just through our historical lens like we've been doing, but through a revolutionary theoretical lens as well. So we're going to be talking about it, talking about visions and narratives and building momentum and all of those things. So that will actually also be kind of like a how to build a, a social movement 101 episode. So be looking forward to that. Um, anything left on this episode that all we right. need to talk about, Nick? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. So that does it for this episode. Okay. You yeah. can uh, find us online at revolutionandideology.com, on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, if you want to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcasting app. We're on all of them, so subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, whatever you use to listen to podcasts. Yeah, that's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Stay uncomfortable. Later. <laughs>